This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. In Buddhism, being aware or being mindful um, isn't just a sort of a given fact of our experience. It's not just that we're mindful or we're aware. Um, awareness is a precept that we take upon ourselves. As Buddhists, we undertake to cultivate awareness. Um, awareness becomes a matter, a matter of ethics. It becomes a matter of morality. Indeed, it's awareness itself that makes morality possible as we'll see. As we've been told, awareness or mindfulness is the central faculty of a group of special faculties, or as we could even call them, special senses, which we develop in the course of practicing the Buddhist path. I'm going to give you a bit of a classic summary of these five spiritual faculties by quoting Sangharakshita. He talks about these in the essence of Zen, and he says, talking first about faith, faith representing the emotional and devotional aspect of the spiritual life must be balanced by wisdom. Otherwise it runs riot in religious hysteria, persecution mania, fanaticism and intolerance. On the other hand, wisdom, which stands for the intellectual, or better, cognitive or Gnostic aspect, must be balanced by faith, without which it speedily degenerates into hair-splitting scholasticism. Full stop. Vigor, or the active kinetic aspect of the spiritual life, must be balanced by concentration representing the introspective, contemplative counter-tendency without which vigour is either animal high spirits or neurotic restlessness, and concentration itself balanced by vigour, divorced from which concentration is aimless reverie, morbid introspection, or neurotic withdrawal. Mindfulness the remaining faculty, being by its very nature incapable of going to extremes, one can't have too much mindfulness, that's where the quote comes from, I think, requires no counterbalancing faculty to keep it in check. Mindfulness it is indeed that keeps faith and wisdom and vigour and concentration in a state of equilibrium. Mindfulness is always useful the Buddha once declared. So there you have it. Mindfulness is always useful. But where do we go from here in developing this central spiritual faculty? In terms of the fifth precept, we speak of the principle of mindfulness. Especially we speak of purification of the mind. If you remember when we were doing the, the refuges and precepts, and we were doing the positive, impre- positive precepts, precepts, we were talking about purification. 
with mindfulness clear and radiant, I purify my mind. So this is the principle. Clarity of mind, maintaining a pure, clear consciousness so that we can really see, really think, and really feel what's going on. So, whatever encourages such clear consciousness is to be cultivated, and whatever hinders such clear consciousness is to be avoided. That's the principle. And to bring that principle right down to earth, the precept is phrased in terms of abstaining from intoxicants. The actual words of the precept, as we recite them together with the three refuges, is, as you'll remember, Sura Maria Majja Pamadatana. And the meaning of these words is pretty straightforward. Sura is a Pali, Pali, an originally Vedic word, meaning intoxicating drink. Maria is a particular kind of intoxicant. It's a strong spirit, maybe like rum or gin or something like that. The word, this word meria is usually found together with, together with sura, just as we find it here in sura meria. And then, the word majja also means a strongly intoxicating drink. <laughs> so, it's making, it's making some kind of point. Majja is derived from the Pali word madha, or mad, meaning intoxication or intoxicated. And I, I try very hard to make some sort of etymological connection with the English word mad, but I don't think there actually is one. Surprisingly. Anyway, this specific connection with substance, use and abuse, I think may be misleading. Intoxication is a state of mind which can arise in a variety of ways, as we all know. Um, in one scriptural source, I found a list of 27 different varieties of intoxication. And often three unskillful intoxicated states of mind are specifically mentioned. One may be drunk with the intoxication of youth, drunk with the intoxication of good health, and drunk with the intoxication of life. And we, we may well have heard that famous passage, some of us, in the Sutra of Golden Light, in the confession from the Sutra of Golden Light, which goes like this. Whatever evil, cruel act was done by me previously, I will confess it all before the Buddhas. Whatever evil I have done by being drunk with the intoxication of authority, or with the intoxication of high birth, or by being drunk with the intoxication of tender age. So, so here we have various states of intoxicated mentality, states which are seen as regrettable because they lead to unskillful action. Intoxication, that is, which comes about simply through being young and full of life, simply through being in good health. And there are those states of intoxication we may fall into when we're in some position of authority relative to others, or when our upbringing is privileged relative to others. I think these show the essential nature of intoxication quite clearly. In all these situations, we feel good 
sometimes in relation to others. We feel good. But our feeling good doesn't motivate us necessarily to do good. We just feel full of ourselves, full of life, full of energy. We feel like we, we always wanted to feel. We feel intelligent, feel active. We feel attractive, feel inspired. Well, I'm not so sure about inspired. Because the point is that in this state of feeling really great, something is missing. The word, yes, we're somehow too full of ourselves. We are intoxicated with ourselves. The word intoxication is connected with the idea of what is toxic, what is poisonous. We are poisoned. Essentially, intoxication is a state of imbalance in which we do not, cannot see objectively. We are somehow blinded, blinded by a particular kind of ignorance. The, the Buddha once said that all unenlightened beings are mad. And, and it's interesting that the Buddha talks in the way we've seen, in terms of the ignorance of youth and inexperience. Youth is a time of madness. Some, some of us may remember. Young men, young women are mad, crazy. They're crazy with desires for this, that, the other, especially that. The fact that they cannot know, they cannot know what it's like to have lived for 40 or even 30 years, the fact that they can only guess what it's like to do that, strongly conditions their view of other people and hence the world generally. Hence, it is often, I won't say always, but often a somewhat narrow and personal view. And that's why they're all crazy. And then 30-somethings and 40-somethings perhaps aren't quite so crazy in those ways because they've got more experience of life. But they are driven insane in other ways. What pushes them over the edge is the pressure to survive financially, to look after family, to succeed in society, to be desirable, to look pretty, or at least acceptable, which is hard enough. There's this tremendous pressure to keep up appearances, maintain that position, preserve a particular reputation, to impress, even when we, we pretend that that pressure isn't there. But the pressure to have sound views, acceptable views, at least some kind of view. There's so many pressures. Life gets complex as you get older. The pressures which the 30 and 40-somethings 40, experience don't even occur as possibilities to teenagers and even many 20-somethings. But such pressures are very real and those poor middle-aged beings are driven quietly insane by them. Tonight, we won't look at the craziness of those who are completely over the hill. <laughs> the 50-somethings and even beyond will draw a veil across that horizon. But the point I'm making is that in different ways and to different degrees, each of us 
has been driven quite mad by the pressures of samsara, at least mad relative to uh, enlightenment or the Buddha's state. We've been driven quite mad by the pressure of being spiritually ignorant. We're under pressure. We are oppressed by many things. And, and later in the Sutra of Golden Light, this idea of the oppression of samsara is expressed in another series of confessional verses. In the oppression of existence, or through foolish thought, whatever severe evil I have done, in the presence of the Buddha, I confess all this evil. And I confess that evil which has been heaped up by me in the oppression of birth, by the various oppressions of bodily activity, in the oppression of existence, in the oppression of the world, in the oppression of the fleeting mind, in the oppression of impurities caused by the foolish and stupid, and in the oppression of the arrival of evil friends, in the oppression of fear, in the oppression of passion, in the oppression of hatred, and by the oppressions of folly and darkness, in the oppression of the instant, in the oppression of time, by the oppressions of gaining merits, standing before and in the presence of the Buddhas, I confess all this evil. Our oppressions do not arise without cause. In the Buddha's vision of enlightenment, his vision of the nature of existence, he realized that everything is continually and interdependently arising upon the basis of constantly changing conditions. What he saw is not a chaos, though. It's a, it's a sort of feedback system. Events feed back and alter other events in particular ways. Our deeds feed back and condition our consciousness. Our consciousness, our awareness, feeds back and conditions what we do, conditions our deeds. Deluded, ignorant consciousness makes it likely that our deeds will be deluded and ignorant, which again, in turn, affects our consciousness. And the traditional image for this is very relevant to our subject. It's a drunken man. In the Wheel of Life you see this. Is it Wheel of Life? One, no, no, it's not the Wheel of Life. I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, the traditional image for this... Um, Deluded, ignorant consciousness is a drunken man. And, you know, he's in this wonderfully intoxicated, really soft, silly state of mind. And at night, he wanders all over, you know, over town, over Croydon maybe, doing many, many unbelievably foolish things. And he wakes up in the morning somewhere, his head ringing, and he's thinking, oh no, did I really do that? Oh, did I really say that? And then he has to live with the fact that he did. After a while, you know, you can, if this is a sort of quite a regular state of mind, you can get used to it. But such experiences do affect one's mind, they do affect one's consciousness. 
The Buddha saw that we're born into a particular kind of body, a body which has in some mysterious way, not in a very direct, in a very mysterious way, been shaped by our mentality. We've been all born in a human shape and as particular unique beings because of the particular unique kind of mentality which we've developed. It's a mentality which has gathered momentum over countless previous existences. Consciousness, according to Buddhism, is always embodied. You don't get consciousness without some kind of body. Um, As you can see, this is the case in life. It's the case too after death, certainly according to the Tibetan tradition. It's the case even in our dreams, as we must know from our experience. There's always a body, whether it's a a subtle mind-made dream body or an apparently solid material body. And our consciousness, unenlightened consciousness, determines this body, forms it. You know, it's like having a body, we have senses. You know, it's part of the package. We have senses. And so, through these senses, the world pours in. So many ideas, sights, sound, millions, millions of moments of sense experience just flooding in, unstoppable. We can't turn it off. We are forced to watch and listen. It's so intense that we have to pass out every night. We have to go unconscious, otherwise we simply can't handle it. You know what it's like, perhaps, if you, if you can't sleep over several days. Life gets very, very difficult. Indeed, it's not that we can't handle it, we don't really handle it. We don't really adjust to this. Because we basically don't understand who or what we are. Being unenlightened, we're forced by that lack of wisdom to interpret what's going on. We're forced to give ourselves some kind of explanation for what's happening. Otherwise, we really will go mad. So, you know, it's essential that we do explain our experience to ourselves, which we all have done. So, over the long period we call childhood, we come to some kind of agreement with the rest of unenlightened humanity about what on earth is going on. And this is how our familiar, conventional, consensus reality comes into being. By the time we've been alive for 20 or 30 years, we've just about got the hang of this consensus reality. Life begins to become slightly more comfortable, ordinary and explainable. This is in sort of middle age. Everything kind of works, seems to, to a degree. But then we hit our first midlife crisis. And after that, things are never quite the same. The consensus reality no longer fits. And then as we get older and older and older, and we start to realise that getting older doesn't stop, that there's no kind of plateau, (laughs) there's no plateau beyond where it sort of plateaus off a bit, we discover increasingly that we cannot control things the way we used to. And then 
reality becomes even less explainable than it was before, and we become a little bit like children again. Thus, in the Buddha's vision of conditioned co-production, our aging body conditions our aging consciousness, which in the longer term conditions the next life. And this process is going on continually, continually feeding back on itself and changing. The actions we do have consequences for our consciousness and our acts of consciousness, even our thoughts, have consequences in terms of our predisposition to act in particular ways. As we, as many of us know from basic Buddhist teachings, we can use this fact positively. It's not as bleak as it may seem. We can use this fact positively. Independence upon consciousness arises form, arises body. Independence upon body arises, arise senses. Independence upon senses arise feeling. In other words, having been born, the world pours in through our body's senses and it feels. At different times, in different situations, the word, the world feels, feels great, feels horrible, or whatever. When it feels great, we want more. We try to change our life so that we're likely to get more of what seems to be giving us the pleasure. When it feels horrible, we back off, resolve to avoid what seems to be hurting us. We change our life so that it doesn't happen too often, preferably not at all. And in this way, we change our lives according to our likes and dislikes. We shape ourselves in this way. We become a certain shape, a certain cast of mind. Okay, But we don't have to be a puppet of our likes and dislikes, as we know. We can also transform ourselves, liberate ourselves from these essentially addictive tendencies. Because though it's hard work, though it goes against the grain in many ways, it's possible to change even our likes and dislikes, just like some people can get used to things like calamari tea. <laughs> it's possible. More importantly, we can change how to respond when we encounter situations that we strongly dislike or strongly like. Those situations, in other words, for which we have a dangerous weakness. Those situations which bring out the worst in us. Those situations which are morally dangerous. Through training ourselves in the Dharma, we can, we can become aware and strong we can liberate ourselves from any obstacle. So, so this brings us back to our all-important faculty of mindfulness. This is why it's so central. The awareness bit is of very great importance. If we're inspired by the Buddha's vision, we can change. But there must be some commitment to developing mindfulness. Just as crisp bread can only help you slim when eaten as part of a calorie-controlled diet, and not when spread with half an inch of butter, peanut butter and jam, so the Dharma can work only where there is awareness. And I hope it's obvious from all this that we're already 
sufficiently intoxicated and maddened, sufficiently mentally unbalanced, it's quite bad enough already without adding to that by deliberately intoxicating ourselves even more with gin, whiskey, Bacardi, Murphy's, baby sham, whatever your poison happens to be. People sometimes ask, don't they, what, what's your poison? Or, for the more adventurous, grass, cocaine, acid, ecstasy, or yoo-hoo, paint, paint thinners, ether, whatever you find most inspiring. I mean, how much of all these stuffs do we need to take in before we realise that it makes life even more complicated than it already is? Well, I suppose people drink and smoke and sniff for all kinds of reasons, but one very basic reason is undoubtedly the sense of unsatisfactoriness that we all feel. They cannot bear to experience it. So they do something with their consciousness which makes them feel different for a while. But the feeling lasts only for a while, after which the sense of unsatisfactoriness comes back. It's all rather depressing, really, if the only way we can find to deal with our sense of unsatisfactoriness is to divert it, to distract ourselves from it, depression is increasingly going to be our lot. Increasingly, to be normal and sober gets to be the same as being bored and dull and discontented. And this is the principle of addiction, which is the principle of samsara, unenlightened life, unenlightened consciousness, the principle of samsara itself. It plays itself out in every department of our lives. We, come, we become dependent on pleasure and security, even if it's not good for us. We run away from difficulty, even when we need to face it. We see this principle particularly strongly in the area of relationships and friendships. It's illustrated by how intensely fearful we are of being separated by those we love. That's an illustration of how strongly these forces are at play in our lives. Anyway, as we know, the approach in Buddhism is radically different. The spiritual life goes in the opposite direction from addiction, you could say. Using this word addiction to mean the whole samsaric tendency. Being straight, being undrugged, is just the start. We need to get over being bored with our ordinary states of consciousness and move on and out from there. We don't try to divert ourselves from our ordinary experience, which is not really ordinary. The whole business is extraordinary. On the contrary, we wholeheartedly embrace it. And when we do this, we become alive while others are effectively dead. At least the, that's what the Buddha said, anyway. So in, the, in, the Dhamma, in the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, Mindfulness is the abode which goes beyond death. Unmindfulness is the abode of death. Those who are aware do not die. 
Those who are unaware are as though dead already. Hmm. Well then, what does the Buddha say about practicing mindfulness? We'd better get onto that. How actually are we to bring to life this dormant spiritual faculty? The main scriptural reference for the practice of mindfulness is the Satipatthana Sutta, or Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. And, and here, the Buddha speaks of its development in four areas, each progressively more subtle. We start with awareness of the physical body. Then the feelings. <coughs> then our general mental state. And finally, awareness of the particular objects we mentally perceive in each moment of attention. Okay, one. Awareness of the body means, first of all, experiencing it. We don't often do this. We don't always do this. Often we don't know how we're sitting, how we're moving, how we're standing. We don't experience our face and hand gestures. We don't experience our body language. You know, and our body language means quite a lot. If I stand, if I'm standing in front of you and I'm, you know, standing a bit like this, you know, something is, is communicated about how I am. When, when we experience our body more closely and continuously, something is communicated. We're, we're, sorry, when we experience our body more closely and continuously, we're more in touch with what we're feeling. That's what I meant to say. You know, it's back to that image of being stone-cold sober. Very often we divert ourselves from our ordinary experience, our ordinary physical experience, because we got out of touch with it. We've started to see it as something alien and unpleasant. But in Buddhism, we embrace our physical experience all the time. We experience ourselves fully and physically. And this, coming on to number two, this being aware of our body means being in touch with what we're feeling, which is the second foundation of mindfulness. Feeling we've already heard about in the, in the context of the Buddha's vision. It's what happens when we open our eyes, see, hear, touch, taste, and think, and smell. Sense experience always feels something. Feels pleasant, feels painful, feels neutral, feels strongly, feels almost nothing at all, but it feels. We grasp after any strong pleasure, back off from any strong pain. And this grasping is what moulds us, what shapes us, what changes us. It's this addictive tendency which creates samsara. So, from a spiritual point of view, it's clearly of, of great importance to be constantly mindful of this whole area of feeling. If we don't know what we're feeling, we won't notice our responses to our feelings. We won't notice when we're getting stuck in attachments and aversions. We won't notice when we're getting stuck in a samsaric rut. If we want to develop, we need to look more closely, need to experience ourselves more fully, fully embrace our experience, to be in 
our experience all the time and not be diverted from it. And to do this, we need to establish ourselves also in the third foundation of mindfulness, that is, we need to notice what mood we're in. Notice what state of mind, generally, we're in. Knowing when we're grumpy and likely to say something unpleasant. Knowing when we're a bit intoxicated and likely to do something silly. Knowing when we're not feeling that intelligent and likely to make a bit of a mess. Knowing when we're tired. Knowing when we're genuinely inspired. Recognising craving, recognising hatred, recognising delusion. If we recognise these moods, we'll we'll be able to be more sensible in the areas we've been talking about. Sensible with respect to our addictive tendencies. Fourthly and finally, it will help to recognise our states of mind and our feelings too, if we also watch the clues given by our moment-to-moment experience of the objects we perceive. Um, What are we actually looking at, say, at the moment? What are we actually hearing? And what are we actually thinking? It isn't always the obvious thing. You aren't just looking at me and thinking about what I'm saying, I'm quite sure. We just aren't that simple. Our minds flash around the universe of our imagination like lightning. You know, so much is going on. So noticing that happening, experiencing it as it actually happens, fully experiencing ourselves mentally, is the fourth foundation or of sati, or awareness, or mindfulness. Okay, but simply noticing, simply being aware of what happens in our experience, is one of two aspects of the practice of mindfulness. As well as sati, which is the Pali word for awareness as we've been describing it up to now, there is sampajanya, or awareness of purpose. Okay, so we're aware of the simple fact that we're doing something. But we also need to be aware of why we're doing it. Because there's an overall point to all this deliberate development of awareness of body, feelings, moods and mental objects. And it is, of course, spiritual change. We're trying to transform ourselves. And this change happens against the natural grain of habit. We need to make an effort all the time to respond in new, creative ways to the old experiences. Awareness provides us, as it were, with an eye to see with. Then, in awareness of purpose, we remind ourselves that we want to change. We interpose the hand of action. So, noticing with the eye of awareness that we are physically unaware, for example, we take ourselves in hand. We get back into contact with our body. We embrace our physical experience. This is an example. Noticing that we don't know what we're feeling and and are just reacting without awareness, we take action. We feel what we feel, good or bad. We take ourselves on fully, take emotional responsibility for ourselves, 
noticing that we're in a grumpy mood. We don't say too much at the moment. We keep ourselves at a safe distance for the time being. Noticing that we're high and elated. Again, we watch out to avoid doing something silly. Noticing, finally, that a particular sight, a particular thought, has sparked off a particular mood, and acting creatively, rather than just reacting blindly. Noticing the tiniest beginnings of thought processes which lead to moods, which lead to specific emotions, which lead to specific actions. Avoiding unskillful actions of body, speech and mind. Cultivating physical actions, vocal actions, mental actions that are wise, that are generous, that allow us to grow. So, skillful action based on awareness. Essentially, that's the practice of mindfulness. Awareness followed by skillful response. The eye of awareness and the hand of skillful action. Sati and Sampajanya. Whoever monks should thus develop these four foundations of mindfulness for seven years, one of two results is to be expected for him. Either enlightenment here and now, or, if there is still any residue remaining, the state of non-returning. Monks, let be the seven years. Whoever monks should thus develop these four foundations of mindfulness for six years. Five years. Four years. Three years. Two years. For one year, one of two results is to be expected for him, either enlightenment here and now, or, if there's any residue remaining, the state of non-returning. Monks, let be the one year. Whoever monks should thus develop these four foundations of mindfulness for six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, for one month, for a half month, one of two results is to be expected of him, either enlightenment here and now, or, if there's still any residue remaining, the state of non-returning. And that's how the Satipatthana Sutta ends. Here's how the Satipatthana Sutta begins. There is this one way, monks, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrows and griefs, for the going down of sufferings and miseries, for winning the right path, for realizing Nibbana, that is to say, the four applications of mindfulness. What are the four? Here in monks, a monk fares along contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly conscious of it, mindful of it, so as to control the covetousness and dejection common in the world. He fares along, contemplating the feelings in the feelings, 
the mind in the mind, the mental objects in the mental objects, ardent, clearly conscious of them, mindful of them so as to control the covetousness and dejection common in the world. Covetousness, dejection, depression, dissatisfaction, lack of confidence. These things are as common after 2,500 years today as in the Buddha's day. It's enough to drive you to drink. But that's not a particularly good way. In fact, there is only one way to deal with them, and that is with awareness, with the eye of mindfulness. Intoxication and mindfulness face in opposite directions. We move either one way or the other, either away from reality or closer into reality. We either embrace our experience or avoid it. We use it or lose it, lose our awareness and imprison ourselves even more than we are already, use awareness and gain our freedom. The choice is ours. So, we can conclude by taking an overview of the central spiritual faculty, which is our fifth precept. This fifth precept, um, this central spiritual faculty, underpins all ethical principles. One cannot be ethical at all without mindfulness, because for example, in order to respond with love rather than dull indifference, one needs awareness, awareness of others. Responding with loving kindness to the needs of living beings is the essence of all morality, of all precepts. It's loving kindness which prevents us from harming, from selfish taking, from selfish sexual behaviour. It's even what causes us to be truthful. We'll only be truthful when we see the importance of communication. And only love, loving kindness, can show us that. So, metta, the desire for others' happiness and well-being, is the motivation for all ethical behaviour, the motivation for it. And metta is nothing but, nothing without awareness. It's just empty, false emotion. So awareness is the basis for metta. And that's why those two principles, mindfulness and metta, are taught right at the beginning at all our meditation classes. They're the opening stages of the entire path to enlightenment because they make ethical behaviour possible. Ethical behaviour makes possible higher states of consciousness, which in turn makes possible true understanding, wisdom and enlightenment. Buddhism is a path of purification. The first three precepts that we recited this evening are said to purify the body. The fourth, speech, and the fifth, mind. Though this is a little bit too much of a schematic list. But never mind. All actions basically come from the mind. All five precepts involve work on the mind. 
all purify the mind of unskillful volitions. The fifth precept of abstention from drugs and drink so that one can develop a clear and radiant mind represents that principle of purification. The idea of purity, of purification, can sometimes sound a bit dull in our ears. We're, we're conditioned for it to, you know, it's, it, it can sound sanitized, it can sound artificial, even false. The very idea of purity have, has become impure. We actually associate purification with something which has been poisoned. But we can't do without the idea of purification. It's a basic spiritual quality. We need to purify our own notion of purification, make our idea of purity genuine. Again, I, I think we need to think more, reflect more, about what purity really means. Perhaps we can use Sangharakshita's aphorism, purity is power, for example. To me, purity means embracing the realm of truth. And I see the realm of truth as a realm of great beauty, of even awe-inspiring beauty. It's a space which is filled with light and presence. It's a place where awareness opens out into a great mandala which affords vision, infinite vision in all directions. And we're at the centre of a mandala, something like that, at this very moment. All of us. And all that prevents that vision from unfolding is the fact that we are, only temporarily, suffering from having poisoned ourselves. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 